Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It is Tuesday, February the 1st, 2011, and this is show number 597 of the Survival Podcast. It will be a great one because I have Paul Wheaton, founder of Permies.com and RichSoil.com on today. It's going to be a long show, probably close to about an hour and a half. You might have to break it into two uh, two segments to get through the whole thing, but it's going to be worth it. Paul is going to bring you some information you've never heard before on the Survival Podcast, and possibly, unless you've been to his website, nowhere else either. We're going to talk about permaculture. We're going to talk about building a, a, the most economical home you could ever think of. Uh, we're going to talk about a ton of stuff that pertains to survivalism, modern survivalism, permaculture, and homesteading. Uh, with a great guest I do have standing by in the wings. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping, which I'm going to blow through today. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Emergency Essentials. Check out Emergency Essentials for all of your long-term food storage needs and other emergency uh, needs as well. Right now, there's snow everywhere. We've got about an inch on the ground here. But only about three, uh, only about a quarter of it's snow. Three quarters of it is ice underneath the snow. That means I'm not going anywhere. And, uh, that means you need to be well stocked up. And, uh, for some of you guys, you're laughing at me with an inch. Cause you guys are gonna get maybe a foot, a foot and a half in some parts of the country with this mega storm coming through. Uh, if you've been to emergency essentials, you're probably prepared for it and more. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my source for all things herbal. And I mean, it is my only source. Because everything I need, I can find there, along with great uh, consult, consult, consultative help. If I need to know something, they'll tell me. How does that work? Uh, Kyle Christensen, for instance, uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen over there, recommended his herbal throat spray for this crap I've been dealing with in my throat. And honest to God, folks, it's the only thing that's made doing the show for the past couple weeks possible with whatever this crud is that I've contracted. I know many of you are dealing with it as well. Check out Western Botanicals for the best herbal supplements you'll find anywhere, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. And remember, everything there is either uh, organically grown or wild-crafted, and that means means you know you're getting the best of what's available. Uh, and they also have a great discount program. It's 50 bucks a year, and you get 25% off everything that they sell. So if you uh, use herbals with any kind of regularity, that membership pays itself back like almost instantly. But if you're part of the member support brigade, guess what? You get that membership for free. That means your first year is covered by that one benefit alone. And we'll just segue right into the member support brigade. Hey, if you think this show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the member support brigade. You get a lot of great stuff. I always talk about discounts. Let me just give you... A few of the discounts you get as a Members Brigade member today. I'll give you like the first, I don't know, five or six of them. Safe Castle Royal, free discount Buyers Club, value 29 bucks. Western Botanicals, just mentioned, free discount Buyers Club, value $50. Ready-made resources, free Silver Eagle with every case of Mountain House food. Honeyville Grains, 10% off all purchases. Knifekits.com, 5% all per, off all purchases. MERS Radio, 5% off all purchases. Uh, the Berkey Guy, free sport water bottles with all orders. Backwoods Home Magazine, Free book with a subscription. And it just keeps going and going. Camping Survival, 5% off all 
all orders. The Soil Cube, 20% off all orders. Uh, silver and Gold Shop, 50% off, off Tea Party Silver Rounds. Uh, BulkAmmo.com, free ammo cam with purchase of over $200. Common Sense Prep, 15% off all Palette and Press books. You see what I mean? I've built something that really pays you back. So by supporting the show, you definitely get a return of investment. You also get uh, over $100 worth of free ebooks. You also get 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. And again, you're supporting the show. for It really actually comes out to about 18 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. All right, folks, and as I said during the introduction segment, we are lucky to have Paul Wheaton of RichSoil.com and Permies.com with us today on the Survival Podcast. Paul is a longtime uh, permaculturist, and his site Permies.com is the most active permaculture forum on the web today. His site RichSoil.com is also a wealth of knowledge as well. Paul, thanks for joining us today on TSP. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, uh, I wanted people that maybe haven't really been familiar with your work yet. I, I have talked about you quite a bit. I've talked about especially permies.com and your YouTube channel that goes along with that. But for people that maybe don't know who Paul Wheaton is and, you know, maybe what you're doing here today on, on the air with us, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into permaculture, who you are, where you live, that type of thing. <laughs> oh, geez. You gave me a list. Can I remember it all? Uh, uh, I live in Montana. I live in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> Um, I uh, got into permaculture. I didn't even know I was getting into permaculture. I was uh, I had 80 acres out on Mount Spokane in Washington State, and um, I was uh, uh, doing a bunch of things that I, I called it uh, full farm ecosystem uh, uh, systems feeding systems feeding systems. And uh, one day a fella comes up to me and I'm explaining what I'm doing, and and he says, "Oh, you're doing permaculture? Uh, perma what?" And, uh, and so then he loaned me a book and I, I got to thinking, man, that, that does kind of sum up what I'm doing. And while a lot of things I'm doing are in this book, so I'm not the first person to have this idea, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff in here that sounds really great and I want to try that too. And so, uh, uh, I just became bonkers about that whole path and, um, uh, have been doing it ever since. I, I made a website about it to, to, to express what I think about it and it's, uh, Gotten to be a bit popular. Did I answer all the questions? What was left on the list? What did I not cover? No, I think I think you pretty much covered it. Oh, Let, let's let's chat a bit about that website of yours. Uh, you, yeah, I'm assuming you mean permies.com. Tell folks, you know, what that site is, what it's really all about. It's dominantly forums, and uh, um, I've got a way of managing forums that's a little different. Um, I don't try to please everybody. I try to please me, and. Uh, uh, so I, I, I restrict, so there's no conversation about politics. I delete anything about politics or religion. Um, and uh, because of that, I, I think we've got a lot of people that are coming from all walks of life, and they're all getting along, and they just don't know they're supposed to hate each other. Um, we don't allow uh, people to um, uh, say anything that could suggest that anybody on the site is anything less than perfect. So a lot of the conversations tend to focus on the issue rather than how the other person is stupid. Um, we, uh, I don't know. I think the topics are really good. We, we seem to have attracted a lot of people that are scientists that are actually working in laboratories today. And they, uh, we get feedback of like, well, I tried your idea in the lab and here's what happened and, and that kind of thing, uh, which I think is really good. We have a lot of That's people awesome. that are farmers, uh, that have actual acreage. We also have a lot of people that are somewhat urban and they're trying a lot of this stuff to the best of their ability. Um, so 
the, the Permese side is definitely that. It started off years ago. I had a couple of articles I'd written out at richsoil.com, and I got so much email from people asking me questions that I created the forums so that hopefully my email flow will 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 become smaller and easier to deal with. Um, and those forums kind of took off and got so big that I uh, and it kind of became a community on its own. I kind of divided out permies from rich soil. So that way there's one site that could be the, the community of the permaculture enthusiasts and another site that's more about my own ranting. Did, did I answer Very your question cool. or am I just babbling? Yeah, no, you're, you're good. I, mean, I, I think that we actually, our communities uh, share a lot in common. We do let some political discussion on our forum, but we, we require people to have been there a while before they even know they can. Um, that, that little illusion is about the only uh, way that people know that. So people actually know each other before they... Uh, start feeling like they need to call each other stupid. And I get why you're doing that on your side because what you're talking about is all practical application. I mean, it's it's how do we get this stuff to grow? How do we make this system better? And wherever a person's coming from in their background may have some effect on how they view things, but when it comes down to making it repeatable so that other people can do it, and to me that's what permaculture as a a, a thing, as a movement, as a um, copyright protected word was really all about because you mentioned that like other people did this before you. Well, other people's did this before there were written the written word existed. A lot of the things that we do, um, and we're just rediscovering these technologies. So I think it makes sense that you do that, and I think it's probably why your community is so successful. I noticed a distinct lack of people calling each other names on your forum as compared to some other forums. Right. I mean, I I delete a lot. <laughs> or at least I, I should say I used to delete a lot, and uh, I think I think in the old days when I deleted a lot, that helped to set a precedent, and now people are carrying that forward. Um, and uh, um, once in a while, I'll get to a thread and and I'll see somebody saying, "Yeah, you might not want to say that because I think that might be uh, annoying Paul, and he'll delete your stuff." <laughs> so a self-policing and, and community. So it seems That's like awesome. we've got some of that going on, but um, I, I think we've got a lot of people that are very passionate about the. Uh, the tone that we have now, and they want to maintain that, and they uh, they they want and they uh, see how we got there, and they want to keep that going. So it's self perpetuating. I, I think that's a big thing with internet forums, and a lot of times the uh, the it, how you work with the early adopters and the ones that stick around when you delete something and go, okay, uh, I get the point. It's his site. I don't. He didn't like that. I'm going to figure out how to do it the right way. And then some just take their ball and go home. But in the end, you, you're left with this core. Uh, that, that self-polices the community. That's how online uh, communities have grown, and successfully anyway. Um, I want to do shift gears a little bit now, and let's get into some of the permaculture stuff a little bit more specifically. One of the guys I've featured on the air quite a few times, pointing people to his videos, is Seth Holzer. Oh, yeah. And I know you're a huge fan of his methods and more his attitude about permaculture not just being some eco-hippie thing, and both of us actually like the hippies to a degree, um, but it, it's it's okay to make a profit, and, and this guy has turned mountain land that was tr- you know traditionally you know something they grew like conifers for, for timber on into extremely productive farmland. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, that view of permaculture and where you you know where you really find yourself in sync with it and expand on that a bit. Yes, I can. First, I want to uh, express that I pronounce his name a little bit differently. Um, whereas you pronounce his name as Sepp Holzer, I pronounce his name as the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer. You, you might have noticed a little difference there. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, as far as the whole hippie thing, I would say that I'm not sure if Seth Poulter would, would count himself in the hippie crowd or not. I'm not sure if I get to be in the hippie crowd or not. Um, I, I guess I kind of am and mostly not. I think a lot of the hippies uh, don't want me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think they don't want SEP either. Um, at the same time, I think that uh, there's a lot of very industrious hippies, and then there's far more that are not so much. And I, I hope to, I like to think that you know maybe SEP and I are more of the industrious crowd if we're in the hippie crowd at all. I'm, I'm not sure if we are. But anyway, um, SEP's work is uh, amazing, and he is an excellent example of what you were talking about earlier. Where it was, uh, he was doing a lot of this stuff before the word permaculture came out. And he adopted the word permaculture with permission of the people who created the word, uh, to, to represent the stuff that he did. Um, and it's, it's just that it's such a, a convenient word to talk about the, the whole systems feeding systems. And so, for example, you'll grow a bunch of plants, and rather than growing them in rows, you'll mix them all up uh, into a polyculture. And when you do that, then the tap-rooted plants are bringing up water and nutrients from down deep, are sharing it with the other plants that are doing other things, and everybody's helping each other. So, for example, if you mix in uh, nitrogen-fixing plants with whatever it is that you plant, they help to um, bring nitrogen from the air to a bacterium, which they exchange with a bacterium, and, and now they can exchange nitrogen with the other plants. And so they're helping the other, the other plants that are in their general area. Um, I think that that's an excellent representation of, I mean, while that's a part of permaculture, that's an excellent representation of what permaculture does. You'll, you will do something and it will be part of a system as opposed to a standalone thing. Um, and, and a lot of times when, whenever we introduce something into a system, it's like, okay, this thing is actually going to help seven different things by being there as well as giving us food or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of that. So the more diversity you can bring in, the richer the system comes. Eventually you get to the point where you can grow all the food that you need and then some, and you don't have to irrigate it, you don't have to fertilize, you don't have any pest control issues. Uh, you basically, and, and if you get far enough along, you don't even have to plant seeds. Everything becomes self-seeding. So all you have to do is harvest. You just show up and harvest. Um, Very cool. Yeah, and, and so a lot of the systems are like that. The, the Wafati Eco Building fits into this and in that you don't have to come up with the energy to heat the structure. The structure will keep itself warm um, all winter long or cool all summer long. Uh, um, I mean, now you don't have to go out and get wood. You don't have to go out and get extra electricity. You don't have to go out and, and, and get whatever you need in order to be able to be comfortable at home. Very cool. On, on, on SEP, before we move on to the, to the Wafati building, because I definitely want to talk about that today, but on SEP, some of the things I'd like you to comment on what he's doing. I mean, some of the things I've seen him basically say, I do this, it works. People say it shouldn't work because of this process, but all I can tell you is I do it, it works, and I don't, I don't care why it shouldn't work. And, and one of the things I saw on your site that, that kind of fills in that nature is he actually plants – some of the plants he plants are toxic plants. They are plants that if you fed them at large to livestock, it would kill them. But yet he's got livestock wandering around everywhere, and they're getting little bits of this and a little bit of little bits of that. And he has very healthy livestock. 
Can you maybe explain how that works out? Oh, absolutely. This is this is a great example of um, and and usually when I give my presentation on Sepp Holzer, I start off talking about me and myself, my my favorite subject. Uh, I've got a thing called the Wheaton Eco Scale, and uh, the idea is is that <clears throat> and it sounds like I'm wandering away from the topic, but really I'm not. I'm going to come back to it just a sec. And that and that is that. Uh, there are six billion people on the planet. Five billion of them are eco level zero. One billion are eco level one. A hundred million are eco level two. Ten million are eco level three. You can kind of see the pattern. And then it works out so that when you get to eco level one, no, see, when you get to eco level ten, there's, there's one person. And that person is Sepp Holzer. Now, one of the attributes of the scale is that Typically, wherever a person is on the scale, when they look at people behind them on the scale, then they, their, their instinct is, hey, you guys are screwing everything up and, and, and you guys gotta get into shape and you gotta do things right, you gotta do things my way. Bah! This sounds like when you're on the highway, everybody going slower than you is an idiot and everyone going faster than you is a maniac. Exactly. Exactly. Now, people ahead of you on the scale, if they're like one or two levels ahead of you, those people are cool. People that are three levels ahead of you are crazy. People four levels ahead of you look like they should be institutionalized for their own safety and for the safety of those around them. So now, Sepp Holzer is at the top of the scale. And now, back to your point about the, the, the poisonous plants with animals. So... If I say to you, Sepp Holzer says to plant lots of poisonous plants where your, where your animals are going to be eating. Does that not sound crazy? People will say, that guy should be institutionalized. In fact, when he was younger, that's exactly what people, that people tried to stick him into the funny farm. Because he thought, they thought that he was a menace to himself and to society. Not to mention being cruel to animals. Uh, exactly. I mean, look <laughs> at this. Oh, he's trying to poison his animals. What the hell? Now, I'm going to explain for you, have it all make sense, and you were you were kind of touching onto it just a wee bit, but I'm gonna I'm gonna explain to you how he comes to the conclusion of doing this. Animals eat in a much different way than we do. Now we have a little bit of instinct and in what's good to put in our mouths. And that is that if you go out and you find ice cream in the wild and you hold it up to your pie hole, you smell it. Ah, it smells good, and you taste it. Oh, that is so good, and you eat the ice cream, and everything's great. This is, you know, something that's acceptable to eat. And then, if you come across a three-day-old uh, roadkill, and you pick up a chunk of that, and you hold it up to your face, your instinctual reaction is, don't put that in your pie hole. That's bad. So that's that's instinct, but these are pretty extreme aspects of instinct. But it, it does give you enough of an idea of how an animal goes along. So we, you take a ruminant, such as a goat or a cow, going along eating dominantly grass, and then they come across something that's toxic. And um, it does not smell appealing. If they nibble at it a little bit, it definitely does not taste appealing. They don't want it. They won't eat it as long as there's plenty of other food to eat. Now, if 
you put them in a pasture so long that they eat all the good stuff and the only thing that's left is toxic stuff, I have a real problem with that. Now, SEP does not recommend it. SEP recommends that you go in, you eat about 30% of what there is in a paddock, and then you move them to the next paddock. This paddock shift system is what a lot of um, uh, graziers are moving to now. Uh, the Stockman Grass Farmer Journal is an excellent magazine, and one of the foundations is, is that it assumes everybody's on board with this idea, this general idea. And then the magazine covers uh, ideas beyond that, which I think is, is amazing. But this, this all started with savory systems years ago. Moving along, if an animal is feeling a bit off, they're feeling a little, a little sickly in some way or another, some of those toxic plants start to smell good and even taste good. This is their instinct for self-medication. Now, if you put an animal in a confined space and you just throw hay over the fence to them, then you're dictating what they can eat. You are, in effect, embracing the arrogance of saying that you know better than that animal what is good for that animal. And now you have made it so that animal cannot feed itself the way it was designed to feed itself, which is based upon having a lot of different food and having its instinct to help it pick out which food is the food to eat. So now your animal doesn't have that option, and you've put in only hay. The animal gets sick. It doesn't have a way to self-medicate. It's now your responsibility to figure out what it needs and then somehow solve that problem and uh, a lot of those kinds of solutions tend to not work very well um, because, you know, our, our knowledge is limited. We think we're, you know, real smart and all, but when it comes to this kind of thing, we're really not. We're not all that smart. I mean, are you going to have a full-time vet, you know, sitting at your place helping you with your animals? And is this full-time vet who may be one of the best vets in the world, does that vet really fully comprehend what's going to be best for this animal, as opposed to this animal being presented with 80 different kinds of food, can then go out and pick out which food helps it, based upon what smells good now, the way the way it, it, it is designed to cure itself. I, I completely agree. And expanding on that a little bit, there is no drug on the planet that could be classified as anything other than a toxin or a poison. Uh, and I don't mean that like we should never take a drug. If if I'm dying of something that's bacterial and you have an antibiotic that'll save my life, please give it to me. I'll take it. Right. But any drug out there, including the drugs that the, the the mother is giving to her child, is a toxin. And by that, I simply mean if I give you five times or a hundred times the recommended dose, it'll kill you. And, and just about every, including aspirin. So all drugs are toxins in of themselves. So when you take your vet, he goes and he injects that cow with uh, that, that, that healthy drug as we view it. It's the use of a toxin that's hopefully toxic enough to kill the, the offending organism without killing the host. And what Steph's saying and what I hear you saying is that if we create the polyculture the way nature intended and we treat the cow like the, the ox of Europe instead of the, the, the cow of the feedlot in, in Lubbock, that that cow will do the same thing and will eat what it needs. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, they all seem to, you know, all the wild animals seem to not eat poisonous things and fall over and die. And that we haven't bred that intelligence out of cows and pigs and other things. Well, and of course, it's, it's only about 100 times more complicated than that. Um, and, and I want to throw in that some of it isn't so much the, the toxicity um, 
is about something that's going to kill something within you but not quite kill you, a lot of times what it is is that um, uh, a need for nutrition. So there's a, a plant out there, perhaps, you know, the animal needs more calcium. And so suddenly comfrey starts to smell really tasty. But now if you were to eat great gobs of comfrey, that could be uh, less than healthy. But but uh, so the the animal's sense of smell and taste uh, combined with instinct is way ahead of of ours as humans. As humans, um, we rely upon memory and what we're told and what we're taught and and that kind of thing. And unfortunately, over the last hundred years or so, a lot of what we relied on for knowledge has been flushed down the toilet. And so we're kind of starting over again. Um, and and then there's all this other information that has been brought up, which has some truth to it, but it's really more marketing and more about somebody's going to make some money than about, you know, it, well, it's, it's, it, it's welcome to 2011's version of snake oil salesman. You know. I completely agree with you on that. You've even, and we probably can't go through the whole thing and get all the stuff we want to talk about it today, but you've taken that paddock approach and you've applied it to chickens. Do you want to chat maybe a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. My article that gets me the most hate mail. <laughs> I love that. I love that article, by the way, but I could uh, I could also hear the, the slamming of keys with, with the way I know some people would respond to it. Let's, uh, I, I, I've written things like that myself, and I know people get so mad. And basically, you just did an analysis of all these different methods and said, here's why I think this one's the best. Uh, let, let's let's chat a little bit about how how you you work that approach. I mean, basically, you take the ideas that come with um, a panic shift systems that came from Alan Savory, uh, and have been evolved by Salatin and many many others, uh, and um, apply it to chickens. Which which in many ways, uh, for a lot of Salatin's work, he's really close to what's being advocated in this article. And this article is also, not only is this something that I came up with, but later I found out that this is exactly what Sepp Holzer's doing. And since writing the article, I have received probably a 100 emails from people that say, that's exactly what I do, and I have the results that, that you're talking about in the article. Um <clears throat> So pretty much the idea is is that you will take a chunk of land and divide it into five or more pieces. Uh, and then you will put your chickens onto chunk number one and um, let them consume 30% of the greenery that's there and then move them to chunk number two. And then um, they'll come back to your first chunk at least 30 days later, well, 28 days later. Uh, so that way, that chunk of land had time to regrow. Now, um, uh, you would think that, you know, uh, the amount of food that's going to be consumed in these is going to be about the same as if you just left the animals in one great big chunk. But the, the bizarre thing that happens is that for a lot of the vegetation that grows there, specifically grasses and forbs, you will get, by using this, this paddock shift system, you will get five times more growth than if you just left them all on one paddock. And there's a lot involved in explaining and how that works. But um, I've I've done this before with cattle and with goats uh, in my very earliest experiments with it. And um, land that was perpetually near desolate dead, I would do nothing more than this paddock shift system where the animals would be in there for like five days to a week 
uh, and then that piece of land would get uh, a month of rest, and then the animals would come back again. I would see the transformation from being a patch of land that was nearly always near death to being some of the lushest land on my property. Um, and, you know, it, it really has little to do with the amount of manure there because if you think about it, you're taking away a certain amount of organic matter and the animal's leaving behind almost exactly that same amount, probably even a little less. So it's not that. It, it has to do with how these plants evolved over millennia to, to work, to, to be, uh, uh, in a symbiotic relationship with grazing animals, with mob-based grazing animals. And they, they flourish in the presence of these animals. Um, and, and there's a bunch of other explanations. It's, it's really a fascinating space, but, but, um, I believe that this is, this is a, a primary component of, of nearly any permaculture system, especially for one where you've got something that's very dry and deserty and you're trying to bring it back to a state of being lush. You know, I think that as I listen to you talk, what, what it makes me think of is the days before fences and boundaries and roads and railroads when animals actually moved. And the problem is even if you have like, you, you know, for, for some of your farmers and ranchers, 40 acres might sound like a small spread, but for a lot of my listeners, 40 acres is a dream. I mean, 20 acres is a dream. So let's say you have 20 acres, you're keeping a few flocks of chickens, and you let them have run of the place. And I read your whole article about, you know, them reshaping your trees and ending up on your porch, <laughs> crapping all over it. Yeah. And, and you're right. And that's one thing I don't want out of livestock once I get moved to my little homestead. Um, but that 20 acres, it seems so big to us as if you compare it to the whole of just one county. It's a tiny, tiny piece of land. And animals used to roam freely without any of these boundaries. The minute we take these animals and we confine them to 20 acres or 40 acres or you know even 100 acres, to think that they're going to behave the way they would completely free, I think is unrealistic because now you've given them a source of food, a source of care. They've associated you with care. They don't fear you. They don't. You do everything you can to protect them from predators, so they don't have a, a need or feel from the predators to move on. So they take their favorite little spot and, and they kind of isolate it. Just like if we put twenty kids together in a room and only have one couch and one TV, you'll come in and they'll all be sitting on top of each other. It doesn't mean they all like each other. It means they all want to see the TV. Right, and, and you're forcing them by moving them manually in segments of five paddocks or greater to move through the the land the way they would naturally. I, I, I'm, you know, as far as naturally, I mean, it's, if you want to talk about naturally and chickens, then I guess the two don't really go together. I mean, well, I, I mean, basically, then we're going to talk about. I mean, I, I think that there is true. I mean, if you. If you've seen a flock of turkeys come through your land, I mean, they do stick together and they do move around and they will cover, you know, hundreds of acres. And I mean, absolutely going in a line and stuff like that. Uh, the problem is with chickens, it's a little different. And, and, um, I mean, I think that if you were to turn chickens loose in Montana or, you know, anywhere that's inland and it gets colder, I don't think they're going to survive. Um, and so when you start talking about naturally and, and this kind of thing, I, I don't know. But, but, um, on the other hand, uh, I do know that they, they will survive in the jungle. In fact, in Hawaii, it's like, you know, uh, they, I, I've heard stories about how there's chickens wandering around all over the place in Hawaii, you know, off of people's land because, uh, they had, you know, because chickens have gotten out 
and and they do fine there. I mean, they that's where they come from. Is is a now then comes the thing about whether they move around or not. I I think that they probably do, but I also think that they're going to be doing some nesting and they are going to stick to some areas once in a while. Now back I, I to the thing right. about the paddock shift. Um, if nothing else. We are, we have discovered the value of moving animals around. Cause in the old, you know, uh, uh, a couple hundred years before white folks got here, you had buffalo going around a mob. And, and so then a lot of the things that we grow in this region, um, uh, you know, have this five times return, five times more growth, uh, thing. And it's like, man, what a powerful tool that is. Let's get the chickens to do this. Much like how the wild turkeys do this, and we'll get that side benefit. And as an added bonus, the chickens, much like how we do, you know, the bonus that comes to the cattle when we move the cattle through a paddock shift system, the chickens come into a system where we've planted lots of things that the chickens enjoy. The chickens eat the things that they like the most, and then they get to go into the next paddock. Now, when the time comes to move them to the next paddock, it's not like you have to to, to, to get behind them and say, yeah, chickens, yeah, get into the next paddock. You go to the gate where the next paddock is and you, and then as you're approaching that gate, the chickens know what's coming. They know you're going to open that gate and let them into the next area where there's all this awesome food, all the ice cream, because when they came into the first paddock, you know, five days ago, they ate all the ice cream first and now the ice cream's all gone. And you're about to open the gate, and they're going to get ice cream again. So then you open the gate, they all race through, all of them. You don't have to force them into the next section. They're going there because they're all tasted up for ice cream. That, that's awesome. It's something I never really thought of. But I guess it, it makes sense. They probably, as they kind of run out of their premium stuff, the stuff they like the most out of that paddock, they probably already started walking along the edge of the fence and trying to peck through it and and, and get a little bit of what's over there. And they can smell it. They can see it. They know it's there. True. So it, it's like ringing the dinner bell. Hey, guys, come on in. Pavlov's hug. Um, so, man, that's awesome. And I guess if you've done it a couple times, then kind of becomes flock intelligence. Hey, man, when that guy opens the <laughs> gate, you want to be the first, you want to be the early chicken through the gate. It's um, the gate guy. The gate guy is here. <laughs> the gate guy. That's that's how I kind of view uh, domestic dogs. You know, you come home and your cat looks at you and he's like, yeah, where have you been? You come home and your dog is like, the life giver has returned, you know, and it they, they have this association with us. This is awesome stuff, folks. You need to read Paul's article on chickens, especially if you're moving to a place, you know, with with some some size piece of land. I guess this is, you actually talked about it could be done in a suburban lot, but it is more challenging. Um, it's kind of like making it fit. But uh, anybody with a few acres could probably pull this off fairly easily, eh? Right. We have a we have quite a few people that are doing this on urban lots, and um, the funny thing is when I put the article up for the first time. Uh, I had people starting to send me pictures and tell me their stories about their urban lots, how they are doing this on their urban lot. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's not like I've invented anything new here. Um, I mean, before I wrote the article, I I thought I ha- I was doing something that was unique, and and then it's like I put the article up, and and I've had a lot of people come to me and say this is what they're already doing, and the, and they do. It's so much better. Um, I think that, uh, and on an urban lot, the temptation is to put in a coop and run. Um, and and um, I have to say that for a lot of people, it's more important to get started with chickens at all than to try and do it perfectly the first time. I, I totally understand coop and run. Coop and run is where I started, 
Um, and, and then once you're there, you can evolve the system. But I think that if you do take the time to read the article, this solution is going to be easier to implement than coupon run. And it'll be cheaper. I mean, how I came to this system was with the idea of like, okay, this year I raised a thousand chickens and I was selling chickens for about the same cost as I was paying for their feed. You know, so, so, um, I, I wanted to improve my profit margin. Now, granted, in time I could probably raise my prices and stuff like that, but, but, uh, you know, the amount of money that I was spending per bird I thought was just way too high. And, uh, and so I started to explore ways of like, okay, I could grow my own food for them, but, but man, now I'm taking on a whole lot of work for trying to get that food harvested and prepared so I can feed it to the chickens. And then I started getting the idea of like, well, why not have the chickens do that work? And, and then how can I make that work? And that, that became how I found this path and how I started down this was, was basically to make more money. And in the end, it's kind of like I think I think that the food that they eat and this system that they like it way better and and because they like it way better then I'm kind of meeting that instinctual need that the food that they're eating is more nutritious and therefore the meat and the eggs that I'm going to get back is going to be not only more nutritious but better flavor um and and once I have tackled that, then I can start charging a more premium price. So I, I, I think that makes perfect sense, and I, I think happy chickens do produce better eggs. Happy chickens do taste better when you when you decide he, he's been a chicken long enough and it's time for him to be a fried chicken. Um, you know, it, it just it makes perfect sense that an animal under stress is going to produce certain hormones and certain stress responses that are not natural. Because no creature in, in, in a natural state, and you know, we say how, how natural we can make a chicken one way or the other uh, to the blue in the face, but no creature in a natural state is going to stay under stress for a long period of time because it will depart the stress. Only in a captive state can we force an animal to be under a constant state of stress. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. So I, um, the reason why I get so much hate mail with that article, and boy, do I get a lot. Uh, has to do with um, one of the techniques. I think I outlined five or six different techniques for raising chickens, and one of them is the chicken tractor. And um, there's a there's a book out there about the chicken tractor, and it says right on it uh, that it's about permaculture and that it's about happy chickens, and it says you know this is all for for having you know a great garden and great chickens, and and in fact, um, as a quick side note, I, I don't know if you noticed the picture in the article that goes to uh, that I that I uh, was used with permission from HappyEggs.org, and when you look at the picture, you can see the chickens inside this brown, desolate area that's clearly devoid of any greenery, and then just outside the <laughs> fence is all this greenery. Greenery, yeah, so it's yeah. Kind of funny, you know, there's all this marketing. Happy, they're happy chickens. Don't you want eggs from happy chickens? Yay! And then, in my opinion, it's not really all that happy. So. Um, I mean, where would you be happier, in a meadow or in, in a dirt pile? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a dirt pile that's three inches deep of your own shit. Um, so, yeah, which one is going to work better for you? Um, uh, and, and there's a lot of these, too. I, I go to a lot of farms. I visit a lot of farms and a lot of uh, gardens and stuff. And they, 
look at my chickens, aren't they awesome? And it's like the ground level inside the pen is three inches deeper than the ground level outside the pen. And there's no greenery in there whatsoever. And you start, it starts to occur to you that the reason why the ground level is higher in there is not because the dirt level was higher or because they've been throwing in, um, uh, a, a deep bedding mulch, like, you know, wood chips or straw or something like that. That's just poop. That's all poop. They're walking on a three inch thick mat of poop. And, uh, it's kind of like, boy, and, and you think that's good. But with the, the chicken tractor, the thing I get all the, the hate mail about, um, has to do with the fact that, uh, they, they put them in a small portable pen and, um, they'll leave the pen in one, and so they'll pack like six chickens in an area that's about, seven feet long and three feet wide. And uh, they'll leave the chickens in there until all the greenery is gone. And the idea is that rather than tilling up a garden bed, that you leave your chickens there, and uh, uh, the chickens sort of kind of till it and fertilize it. And by the time you move it, there's like this half-inch thick layer of chicken crap on your garden bed and, and not a single weed because the chickens have eliminated all of it. Um, and the point that I make that gets me all the, the hate mail is that, um, you know, the chickens will eat the first 30 to 40% of the food that's there that's like the ice cream and the stuff that they really like, the stuff that's really good. Then they start moving into the stuff that they don't like so much. I mean, it's it's got a slight toxicity to it, but not too bad. Um, and then once they've eaten that, the only thing that's left are the weeds that are uh, very toxic. And it's kind of like, okay, I've got my choice between my moldy Purina chicken chow that's made from grains that um, don't qualify as human food. So it's all this sub-quality, you know, food in quotes. It's like it's it's not it's not acceptable to feed to humans, and so but you can feed it to chicken. So I have the choice between that and or this um, weed which I know is toxic, but, you know, it's got greenery, and I'm craving greenery. So I, I, I get to pick between moldy, uh, awful food, like it was never good to begin with, and something that's green and fresh, but it's toxic. And they end up eating both. They end up, they end up eating, you know. So now, finally, they get to the point where all the greenery is gone, and now they can move to the next area. Gotcha. So they only get the good stuff for one small portion of time. I wanted to get your opinion on kind of a hybrid approach, which would be having chicken tractors set up that are the size of your standard bed and basically paddock running your chickens for 99% of the time. But when, because if you just make a paddock where all your beds are and you let them in there, well, you're letting them into beds that may have seedlings and things like that and they can be destructive. But maybe grabbing half a dozen of your flock, putting them in that tractor for half a day and then returning them to your paddock to give them a chance to work over that bed, but not to the, you know, not to the point where they've completely wiped it out and using that approach kind of as a hybrid. Well, um, I, I, I think that usually when you, when you start down the path of like, I want the chickens to get in there and kind of wipe that thing out. Um, not, I don't think that that usually works out good for chickens. I think it works out great for pigs. It's like if you want to say to, if you want to, if you have an area that might be an acre and it's like, okay, I want to, 
I mean, this is, this acre is, is nothing but brush and, and weeds and I, it's so thick, I can't even get in there and get started. I'm going to turn pigs in there and eliminate half of that. And now it's easier for me to go in there with a chainsaw or something like that. That I'm thinking more along the lines of standard raised bed, guys growing lettuce and, and, and squash and things like that. And during that season that that bed's used, there's a lot of insects that have pupated and gone down into the soil. So this is worked land. And letting those chickens on that for four or five hours, one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to start scratching and digging and looking for you know, the squash vine borer pupa that's, that's gone yeah. down into the dirt and things like that. That's more what I'm saying. Right, 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 right. Um, I, I, I am totally comfortable with the idea of doing something like that where the chickens eat no more than 40% of the, the greenery that's there. So, like, if you put them into a, a, a confined space on your bed and they consume 40% of the greenery there and then you move them, absolutely comfortable with that. I am great with that. That's wonderful. And they, and they will, you know, along the way, during that 40%, they, they will obliterate nearly all the insects in that space. And they will scratch down and dig up quite a few that have gone, um, you know, below the surface of the soil. Um, you know, so you'll get all the benefits you're looking for. Beyond that, if you, you know, if you go to 60 or 70%, that gets to be in a space where my, I have a little bit of discomfort. Um, you know, not great discomfort. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, maybe the upsides outweigh the downsides. Um, maybe. Uh, and it's debatable and, and it's up to you to decide and that kind of thing. Um, but when you get to the point where it's like what a, where a chicken tractor is used and you're going to eliminate all the weeds, um, and then because by that time, now you've got chickens standing around in their own shit all day long. Agreed. And, Agreed. That's always been my problem with the concept. And I am just really not okay with that. Um, and, and, but that's me and, and my being not okay with that is where I get most of my hate mail. Um, <laughs> well, you can join me on the hate mail list. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I at least rack up a good dozen a day that are some real interesting things. I, I, I do want to make sure we keep going because there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about today, Paul. And one that I had no idea you had even talked about until we chatted on the phone the other day in prep for this email or in prep for the show was this concept of a building called a Wafati building, uh, W-O-F-A-T-I building. And I promised the listeners when I announced you we'd talk about that. So could we shift gears big time and chat about that a bit? <laughs> well, first of all, when I make up a word, I get to decide how it's pronounced. <laughs> so I, I've elected to pronounce it Wafati. Um, and uh, uh, basically, this is uh, um, a combination of ideas. In, my, in the article, I, I, I give credit where credit is due. Uh, uh, really, this is uh, 80% of what I talk about in Wafati is based upon the works of Mike Ayler. And um, he wrote a book uh, called The $50 and Up Underground House Book. And I uh, do not care for an underground house. I don't want to ever do that. And so the Wafati is like taking the best of what I feel is the best of, of Mike Ayler's work and putting it into an above-ground structure to live in, although I do also define Wafatis that are for um, uh, like a, a, a year-round freezer without any energy um, and uh, uh, something that's like a root cellar. And these are below ground structures. 
Um, and, uh, and there's also, um, a Wolfati structure for animal shelters and, and a variety of other things. But, um, for, for a home, for something for people to live in, I define a Wolfati to be, uh, um, 80% of this Ehler structure and combine in with it, uh, John Haight's designs for passive annual heat storage. So that, uh, with a Wolfati, it should be something that's um, far cheaper to build, like about five times cheaper to build than conventional. Now, in, in the article, I start off talking about, let's talk about what is what other people call eco-homes. They have their straw bale, they have their cob, and there's a variety of others. Most of these eco-buildings or green buildings turn out to be vastly more expensive than a conventional structure. Absolutely. And of course, then the person building it says, even if I save energy, what's my ROI? What's my time to repayment? And if it's 15 or 20 years, they make an economic decision. Right. And I don't think it's a slam dunk. And and there's a lot of people that are like crazy about straw bale. They want to build a straw bale home. And um, the amazing thing is, is that it ends up being far more expensive. I mean, how eco is it if you've got to put your straw bales on a semi truck a thousand miles away and drive it over to your house. Um, I, I think you just lost your eco coupons there. Uh, on the other hand, if if you're building the straw bale structure in the middle of a of a wheat field where you know you're 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 able to get your straw bales, uh, well, you know now you're talking about an eco building, hot dog, um, and and cob. A lot of times, I mean, I've uh, the the work of I, I, you know when it comes to cob, I turn to Ianto Evans. What a brilliant architect. What what an amazing thing he's done at being able to show somebody that you can build your own home for like 5000 bucks. That is it is just awesome. It's so easy, so simple, and it's a piece of art. Uh every car building looks to me like a piece of art. However, it's going to take you a long time to build it. It's a really long it's time. Ooh, doggy, yeah. And and then uh, uh, you look at the Earthships and uh, you know, their use of those tires and stuff. But uh, you better, I, I hope if you're going to build it, you better build it while you're young. Because when you take those sledgehammers to the soil all day long, every day, for several summers in a row, in order to build your home, um, you're going to be mighty sore. And You know what I've told, Paul? You know what I've told everybody that's written me and asked me about building Earthships is, before you decide this is for you, go get one tire and a shovel and a sledgehammer <laughs> and pack one tire with dirt, <laughs> then figure out how many you would need to build your home, and then decide if this really makes sense for you. That is awesome. I like that. <laughs> so, Just one. It's all it takes. Yeah. Just one, like a potato chip. I, but unlike a potato chip, instead of you can't eat just one, you may only ever fill just one. And, and you know, the second my second concern about the Earthships, I mean, I think Earthships have got a lot going on for them. They are really incredible in a lot of ways. But my second concern, outside of the the, the bones, the, the, yeah, you're going to ruin your bones, uh, my second concern is is that I sat next to a pile. It's like I was at a site where it's like, okay, we're going to build one of these Earthships, and here's the pile of tires we're going to use. And um, and they say if once it's an old tire, it doesn't off gas anymore. But here I am standing outside, and there's a breeze blowing it away from me. And I'm sorry, I smell tires, and it stinks. It's not like oh, I cut a whiff of a tire. No, it's like so if I can smell tires and there's a stack of tires right there, they must be off gassing. And it's 
and it must be, uh, you know, even even though they're old, because that was the, that's the thing that they keep saying. Oh, the tires don't off gas once they're old, but um, I'm smelling them there, and it's like now you get the tires into the structure. Maybe you can cake them with enough, you know, cob or mud or something, adobe on the inside, so that they won't smell as much. But I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little bit worried that you're still off gassing a bit. Um, and that that's a concern. Maybe it's an invalid concern, but I'm going to put it up in the concern pile there. Now, we come to a, um, a Wafati. The price to build the Wafati should be about one-fifth of the price to build a conventional home. And and part of that is is that is the cost of labor because you're going to build a Wafati about three times faster than a conventional home. Um, and so that's you know so there was my long-winded way of getting around to that was to say when it comes to eco building I I think the other thing is is that it's it's the the Wafati is is a, something of an acronym uh, in that the W in Wafati is for woodland. And um, if you build this in a woodland, and you got to thin your, if you if you have, uh, if you're gonna do some good forest management, some good woodland management, you need to thin it once in a while. And so the wafati can be built almost entirely out of uh, what you use to thin your woodland. And uh, so basically, these materials are not only free, but um, very renewable. Um, and uh, uh, you can, well, anyway, so then. The materials that you use to complete the building of the Wafati outside of the logs that you're going to be using could probably fit into a compact car. You could bring them up in one load, build your Wafati, and and now I'm talking about you know the shell of the building, you know, um, which includes the roof and the floor and um, the walls. Could you kind of explain the characteristics of what is a Wafati? What's it look like? You know, I know we can't do pictures here, but for people <laughs> that are going, okay, what is this thing? What, what is it? What does it look like? What is its characteristics? How do you make one? It's going to look a lot, from the inside, it's going to look like a log cabin and with a lot of windows. Um, from the outside, it's going to look like the hillside. Uh, it's it's a, an above-ground structure, structure with a very thick Earthen roof, three feet thick, earthen roof, um, and uh, it has a lot to do with how the roof is shaped. But basically, um, you're going to build a wooden structure out of the logs that you pull from the woodland, and then you're going to put down a layer of black plastic, and you're going to put some soil on that, and another layer of black plastic, and then a lot of soil on that. Um, now for Mike, and this is a lot of like how Mike Ayler's structures are designed so far. But now the part that gives you the annualized thermal inertia is going to be where you extend that black plastic way beyond the edges of the structure, thus giving you a bunch of dry soil around the walls and underneath the wafati. Um, and, and now you're going to have this, this enormous thermal mass. You're going to have like, um, hundreds of tons of soil acting as your thermal mass. And so uh, uh, once you get the temperature set for that thermal mass to be 70, then when you get into the summertime, then your inside home is going to be riding around uh, 72, 74, something like that, even though it may be 90 degrees outside. And then when winter comes along and it's 40 degrees outside or 30 degrees outside, your temperature inside is going to be riding around 70 or 68. 
So um, you're you're going to have this this massive buffer um, depending on the temperature. Now, uh, uh, right now, Mike Ayler's stuff. He experiences that when it gets to be 20 below outside, it gets down to about 40 degrees inside of his structure. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do or what the annualized terminal inertia portion of the Wafati is doing is to try and improve that. So if it gets to be 20 below outside, it'll still be 66, 68 inside. So that's, that's our mission there. Now, um, very cool for your listeners. I think one of the important stories from Mike Ayler's work is that uh, there was a guy in Europe, he had a four-bedroom house, and I think it was on like about an acre. And um, the government folks showed up, and they said, we heard that you have a four-bedroom house on this property, and you never got the permitting for it, and we're angry about that, and we're going to find it, we're going to find you, we're going to make your life sad, and then, of course, we're going to raise your taxes because the property now has a structure on it, and the dude said, well, uh, you show it to me. So then these guys, there's like two or three of these government guys, and they walk the property, and they never found the house. So here it is. It's a four-bedroom house, and they never found it, and it's on a fairly small chunk of land. They never I, I found can, it. I can tell you there's there's people out there right now just going, how do, how do you do that? Uh, specifically people that are looking to set up what we call a bug-out location or a fallback location, that one of their chief concerns is not just disappearing, but since they're not there to keep an eye on things, having this place they can go to and not having it looted or ransacked or damaged, you know, just while they're not there, even if they use it for all intents and purposes a hunting camp. Um, you know, we everybody, when I was growing up in Pennsylvania in my area, either knew someone or the family had a hunting camp upstate for, for bear season and deer season. And one of the chief concerns was you're going to show up and somebody's done ransacked your camp. Right. So I know people are going to want, how do, how do you build that? So is, that, is his book the best resource on that? And can you say more about how you do that? Well, the Wafati article is going to go into it a little bit, but but really, as part of the, I mean, the Wafati article is is very emphatic on being a hybrid between these these two books plus a bunch of other variations that I've had. Now, I've I've uh, visited at great length with the author of the fifty dollar and up underground house book, Mike Ayler, and um uh, and I've run all of these ideas by him. I've had I sat with him while he read through my whole article and he made a few other suggestions. And and I and so everything that's in my article has been run by him, and and he either agrees with it or he agrees that it's a point of debate between the two of us, but it's plausible. And um, uh, so I would say yes, get Mike Ayler's book, the fifty dollar and up underground house book. Um, I link to it from from my article on the Wafati page, and and uh, I mean the book is is really brilliant. I do not like the underground part. But um, a lot of his designs are also above ground. It's just that when I say Wafati as a home, it, it part of the definition of it is that it is an above ground structure. But yes, there are uh, a lot of people, and and I know that Mike ex- uh, exchanges snail mail with a lot of people, talking about exactly what you just said. Where their mission is is that they want a home. Somewhere that nobody can see it, and and the thing is, is that it's got a thick earthen roof, and um, it's because of that you can grow bushes and trees and stuff on it. I've taken YouTube videos of Mike's structures, 
and you can see a couple that that are like 30 years old and when you look at them from the other side it's it just looks like it's part of the hill you don't see anything and um when i was up visiting with mike um uh, a couple of years ago i told him about rocket mass heaters and how they um produce only steam once they get going they don't produce any smoke it's just steam which you know evaporates and is gone about three feet away from the exhaust port and um and he's like oh i gotta tell these guys that are like all hiding about this because that's the thing that always gives them away is that absolutely is a smoke smoke oh look i see the smoke over there i know that there's like there's some sort of something over there and uh, uh this eliminates that you know, so um, uh, he, you know, I spent hours then going over all my rocket mass heater stuff with him, and and he's just powerful Jones for it. Very cool. Well, you brought something up there I wanted to, to touch on, and we're kind of long in the show, but like I said, we can go as long as as long as you'll stick around for. Honestly, and this is great stuff. I know everybody out there is really enjoying um, the rocket mass heaters. This is something new to me. I was very familiar with the concept of a masonry heater, the old Russian stuff. Uh-huh. Very familiar with the rocket stuff. And then I'm climbing around on your channel, and I start finding these rocket mass heaters, which kind of sort of hybrid those two things together. And you take this heat from a rocket-style burn, and you push it into a thermal mass. Can you talk about some of the applications of that? Specifically, one of the ones I thought was brilliant was I saw you or one of the people you were videoing uh, building a greenhouse and using the ground as the thermal mass. Right. Using the ground as a thermal mass is a fairly common thing. I mean, using it either as like, uh, you know, like running, running the exhaust of the rocket mass heater through a floor. So you're basically heating your floor is, is a fairly common approach. Um, if you're going to talk about a greenhouse, I think, I think Mike Ayler has some amazing stuff for greenhouses so you don't need heat. But assuming that you're going to, because most people, it's like, uh, whenever I talk about greenhouses, they never take any of my advice, and then they hate their greenhouse, and then they stop using it. But, um, but okay, let's, let's suppose you're going to put in, you want to bring in some kind of wood heat for your greenhouse. A rocket mass heater is far superior than any of the other approaches, especially for a greenhouse. And yeah, what you do is, is you will run the exhaust duct through the uh the the greenhouse bed and it effectively uses the greenhouse bed as the mass and yeah i've got a youtube video about doing exactly that um but back back to the rocket mass heater and what it's good for i mean so some of the important points is that you can is in homes where they've been introduced where they replaced a conventional wood stove the reports back are that they're using 90 to 95% less Wood. No, let me let me take that back. Ninety percent less wood. So um, uh, one of the videos I have is where a guy uh, was talking about how they had a wood stove and they used four cords of wood every winter, and uh, now they're using a half a cord of wood every winter, and they're using so little wood that they don't even go out and and get wood anymore. All they're doing is they're just keeping the trimmings off of their trees, and they're just running that through it. Absolutely, and how sustainable is that? I mean, that's that's something with you know, even on a very small lot, you, you could do that with a half an acre. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 you might even choose to plant a couple of things that you know generate a lot of uh, wood that's got a high BTU in it. Um, the exhaust from these things tends to be um, 
nothing more than steam. But if you think about it, if if you're using one-tenth the wood to heat your home, then your pollution factor, your exhaust, your smoke is already reduced by a factor of 10 just by the fact that you're burning 10 times less stuff. Now we mix into it the fact that the rocket mass heater has this special combustion chamber where it burns the smoke and, and it's doing so more efficiently than your most efficient conventional wood stoves, then uh, you end up with something that is dominantly exhaust. I mean, I myself, and I know many other people have done this, you go to the exhaust for a rocket mass heater and you stick your face in it. I've done this. I'll stick my face in the exhaust and I breathe it in deeply. And here is my analysis. It smells like steam because it's wet. It's really wet. It smells like somebody far away is burning a fire today. It does not smell like I'm standing at somebody's chimney, you know, smelling their smoke, which I'm sure I wouldn't get more than a quarter of a second into it before I would drop over coughing and choking. Absolutely. And just to protect myself from the bottom-feeding lawyers out there, what, what we're not advocating here, and what Paul's not advocating, <laughs> what I'm not advocating is that you burn one of these and leave the exhaust come out inside your home. It is CO2, and sooner or later, if you get too high of a concentration, you go to sleep and never wake up. But what he is saying is it, it's, it's CO2 and steam. You know, and, and bringing up that point brings up a fascinating story of how this guy, Ianto Evans, how he created these things. He was in Africa and and he came to these places all over in Africa, these villages, where the people, in order to do their cooking, they would build a fire inside their home and they weren't too big on the concept of the chimney. So they would open up their front door, their house would smell up, fill up with smoke, and the smoke would go out the front door. And they had all these eye problems and lung problems and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and he was thinking, okay, I'm going to do something. I want to help. I want to make things better. I'm going to save Africa from this problem. And uh, so he uh, brought, he introduced to this one village, uh, to several villages actually, the the, the whole um, uh, solar oven. And so he showed them all how you can do your cooking with the solar oven. Now you don't have to go get wood and and stuff like that. But the thing is, is oh, so anyway, he goes away for three months. He comes back. And no one has a solar oven anymore. They're all gone. But everybody has this really lovely, shiny jewelry. So, clearly, not a fit. Not a culture fit. <laughs> These guys are going to keep on cooking with wood. They're, they're just not, they don't buy into the whole solar thing. And, you know, frankly, when you, if you've ever tried to use a solar oven, it can be slow. It, it, um, you know, you're kind of dependent on a sunny day. Uh, yep. you know, it, it's, it's, there's some, some parts to it that aren't all that awesome. Yeah, I've got a great one, but it's something that, like, if I want to make something that you cook long, like beans or something like that, and I know I'm going to have a great sunny day, it's great to set up. Yeah. And you don't, it's in the, especially in the summertime, you don't turn your oven on and heat the house up, and it's fine for that. But, like, today, I've got overcast, and even though it's 60 degrees here today, I ain't gonna cook with a solar oven today because there's no sun. It's kind of a kind of a funky novelty more than anything else. It's I mean it's and, and I think that's kind of what happened. Well, anyway, so anyway, moving on with the story, 
Ianto embraces that, and so then he comes up with the rocket stove, which you've heard of. And um, the thing is, is that now these people are able to cook uh, in in their homes, um, and and the exhaust is going right into the air. But but now it is far cleaner, and so they can cook their food with ten times less wood. And so uh, the the the, the I, I'm, I, this is going to be a sexist thing, but this is their culture. The women like it because now the women aren't hauling that they, they haul ten times less wood. Awesome, ten times less trips out to get wood. You know this is this is really great. Um, and and also the air in their home is so much cleaner. I mean it burns almost completely. There's virtually no smoke in the home. There may be a hundred times less smoke, maybe a thousand times less smoke. So in the end, Ianta solved it. Then he comes to America, and of course, we're still struggling with, I mean, we're going to war because we want oil and because of our energy usage and all this stuff. And so basically, um, you know, you think about all of these generals and soldiers and politicians fighting all these wars. Uh, I think I think Ianto has done more to get us out of war than all of them combined. I mean, he's basically set it up so that here, now, You've got a way to heat your home, and that's going to eliminate, you know, 25% of our energy needs for heat. And and uh, uh, now we don't need foreign oil anymore. And you know, I think you're onto something big there because one of the things I hear people talk about is how 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 environmentally friendly it is to heat with wood, but if you don't make it efficient. It, it, it really ain't so much if you go back to the Middle Ages before they started using coal when they were burning the forests all the time and cosmosing everything. At least they did that to get more wood. Places were dirty and sooty and nasty, and this efficiency actually makes it practical for that to be the case. Right. I mean, wood is an amazing renewable resource if you use it right. And, uh, you know... Here's something where it's it's a, a big leap in the right direction, and and right now it's amazing to me. I, I go to, um, I get invited to these people's houses all the time. Look at how awesome I am. Look at look at my amazing garden. Look at the amazing things I do. And uh, they've got one of those green uh, trash can things, those jumbo sized green trash cans, which is which is only for your sticks and stuff that you pull off of your land, your compostables, and uh, it's kind of like. Wait, you you're you're packing your organic matter away, and it's like those sticks that they keep hauling off, or or uh, I know in Missoula you can take all that stuff and you can push it into the street in October, and then they take all your leaves and your branches and stuff away, and I'm thinking, what a waste! What this is the wrong way to go. You should be able to just take those sticks and burn them. Which, in a way, is kind of like what's happening in the composting process. I mean, it's more complicated, but it is a breaking down it's of... It's a burn. It is a And on some of, levels, it's a burn. In some levels, it's a burn. Exactly. And i tell you another thing. that If you look at the irony there, so the guy takes uh, all his sticks and, and has them called away. He doesn't pay directly if it's part of waste management, but he's paying because we all pay for our waste management. And then he buys heat <clears throat> from another source. When he just <laughs> paid to have his heat... Taken away, and, and these are not complicated structures to build at all. Really, I mean, no, no. if they could, if they could pull it off in the third world. Surely, we could pull it off here. Oh yeah, uh, we've got. Uh, usually, it takes a weekend to build a rocket mass heater, 
Um, uh, if you were to buy everything brand new, it, I mean, I think if you went over 200 bucks, um, you weren't, you know, looking. But I, I know of people that have built them for less than 20 bucks. Um, so, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's cheap. It's crazy cheap. And I think that, uh, if we start to get down the path where a lot of people are building these, I would imagine that a lot of uh, industrious uh, entrepreneurial folks will come out with all kinds of stuff that'll make it even easier and cheaper and better and all that stuff. Um, I think the one big challenge is retrofitting to an existing home. I think that if you're building a new home and planning for it, it's probably much easier to do. True, true. Although most of the ones I've seen have been put into existing homes. I haven't seen too many where it was... Um, Designed as part of the home. Um, I've come up with some designs of my own, which um, uh, are designed to be somewhat portable. So if you're in a rental situation, you could build one of these. And in theory, when the time comes to move, it should be less than 90 minutes to take it apart and put it on the truck. And when you get to your new place, it should be less than 90 minutes to um, build it again and get it set up again. Uh, Very cool. And and uh, the exhaust um, is uh, a dryer vent, really. You know, um, uh, you're just you're. I mean, so basically, that's the big kind of scary part is you might be putting a hole in the wall, or uh, um, if you're, um, I, I don't. You know, one of the things you could do is I know that I choose to not own a clothes dryer. I use drying racks, and then I can use the dryer vent that comes with the house. You can use the existing dryer vent to, 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 to vent off. That's that's really cool. And, you know, if somebody sees that running, it looks like your dryer's running a little steam and, and CO2 coming out there. Yeah. That's very cool. The, the, it, the exhaust is typically, the exhaust that's leaving the system is typically 70 to 100 degrees. Now, if you run them, if you run them really, really hot, really, really long, you might get it up to, a, to 120, maybe 130. But then you think about the smoke that's leaving the smokestack for a conventional wood stove is leaving much faster it's like blowing out of the chimney, and uh, it's typically uh, a 250 to 600 degrees. Which means the heat that the, 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 the fuel is capable of producing, uh, all of that heat in a, in, a, in a fireplace or a wood stove is being sent up the chimney, and that the, since the wood's actually burning hotter in a rocket uh, mass heater, that means that the heat staying inside the house or going into the thermal mass and later being released, and that's where the efficiency comes from. Right. Right. I mean, basically, we're keeping more of the heat inside. And, uh, yeah, the thermal mass um, buffers a lot of that. And, and uh, you'll build one fire in the morning, and the following morning, that thing will still feel hot, and it's still pumping out heat. So we're just saving. It's like a giant thermal battery. Yes, exactly. In a way to look at it. Exactly. I, I want to I shift gears one more time here, because I want to get this last subject in. Uh, today's show, talking a little bit about irrigation and some creative irrigation things. And the reason I saved it for last is because it honestly is how I found you in the first place. I was on YouTube, and I was looking at some permaculture videos, and I ran across this thing called Hoogle Culture. And I thought, well, that sounds different and neat. And I'm always looking for different neat stuff to bring. And I found this video called Hoogle Culture, proof that it works. And, you know, to my surprise, uh, you were the uh, content provider that was providing that video. And could you talk a little about what it is and how it works and maybe some other stuff about irrigation as we wrap up today? Because the one thing that if we're going to grow our own food that we have to provide our plants is water. And without water, everything turns to the desert. So what's hygge culture and what are some other ways we can conserve water? Okay. Uh, uh, I would have to say that the, you know, the first thing is you use the word irrigation. And so I, I'm specifically saying that I am eliminating 
irrigation. Um, uh, and, and for one thing, if you go out and, and if you've got some raspberries, let's say you got a raspberry patch and you go out there and you water those raspberries and then you go out and you eat those raspberries, they will be far more bland than if you never watered them. Now, raspberries up here in Montana, raspberries will grow in the wild. Um, and those will be some of the tastiest raspberries you've ever had because you know, partly because they were never watered. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, another thing to keep in mind is is that a lot of these plants managed to survive for millennia without some doofus in a hose coming up and watering them. And so you got to think, how did they get by? How did they survive without that? Because in our gardens, we can have a patch of raspberries, and we know that if we don't go out there and water it every week or so, or maybe even every other day, they will shrivel up and die. So we've we've seen it. We know it to be true. So then it's like then you got to think about like well what's the difference? How is it that there can be raspberries over there that don't need water and there's raspberries in my backyard that do need water? And and it, and then that's where it comes down to the soil. You know, how is this patch of soil different? And um, and hugel culture basically grabs onto one of those ideas and takes it to an extreme. And the idea is you have more organic matter. And hugel culture is really nothing more than a bunch of wood and a bunch of dirt on top of it. And um, uh, Sepp Holzer now does his hugel culture bed six feet high. Uh, and and uh, then of course you, you start off building them six feet high. And then they'll decompose over time, and it'll be only three feet high. Um, some people, I've, I've run into some people who build them even higher because the, you know, well anyway, because of the desert conditions. With Hugo culture uh, and Sepulter building these ones that are six feet high, he went into the deserts of Spain where they were getting three inches of rain a year, and now he has a variety of things, including uh, Jerusalem artichokes growing out there that are not desert species. And they are um, uh, going all summer long without any rain, without any water, um, uh, and and doing great. Just and they're they're living, they're thriving, they're doing awesome. It's nothing more than hugel culture. Uh, Let me uh, bring up the, the the big objection that I, I'm just I'm, I'm just so happy to have you here to talk about this because I've been dealing with people freaking out about the fact that I use wood in my gardening for years. They see my videos, and I've got this like four-inch deep pile of wood chips and stuff growing in there, and they all freak out. The wood's going to take up the nitrogen. The wood's going to take up the nitrogen. They're right, and, and, and they're and they're right, but <laughs> but but <laughs> I want you to give the but. Okay. <laughs> um, they they are they're totally right. Uh, the the uh, the wood is going to suck up the nitrogen. The nitrogen wants to do the composting thing long before it does any of the plant feeding thing. Um, and, and there's, there's a, oh boy, there's just layers and layers of complexity in this. Um, one of the things is, is that at some point that those carbons are going to suck up so much nitrogen that, that now they're going to start giving off the nitrogen. All that nitrogen they sucked up, now they're breaking down a little bit more and now they're giving it off. So, um, that's part of what we're shooting for. When you first build a hugel culture bed, the first year is going to suck. It's, it's going to not give you any of that awesome, um, I don't have to water my bed stuff. 
because uh, the first year you're going to have to irrigate it to keep the, the plants alive and help them get their start. The second year you won't have to. In the third year things will really thrive. But in that first and second year, all those carbons are going to be sucking in every available nitrogen they can get a hold of. No doubt. Um, and then there's ways to mitigate that the first year. Um, and then after that, then, you know, when you get to about the third year, now they're giving off the nitrogen. So imagine, if you will, you make this raised bed, and, oh, no, you're going to do things to help add nitrogen to the system. Maybe put down a little hay. Maybe put down a little or, uh, uh, organic lawn fertilizer, such as um, uh, feather meal. Um, uh, Blood or and bone, maybe. What's that? Blood and bone, maybe, uh, some stuff like that. Maybe, you know, um, I prefer to people go with whatever they've got on hand. Um, and, or I, I'm a big fan of, of, of hay. I think... I mean, uh, Ruth Stout is a brilliant woman. I, I like the Ruth Stout method for a lot of things. So, so in the beginning, uh, the idea is, is you'll do gardening, your more traditional gardening, which most people are doing anyway. You're doing it anyway, and, and then, I guess you could plant some crops that help provide their own nitrogen during that period. Your legumes and things like that would be good bet. first year crops. You bet. You bet. And uh, and then in the second year, now you're moving into the space of more. Um, permaculture. You're going to start getting your payback from those hugel culture beds. And, um, and then the third year, it's going to really pay off. So yeah, it requires a certain dose of patience. Now, um, frankly, now let's talk about what's the big payoff though. How long, you know, it takes three years to get that big payoff. Then how long does that bed continue to produce for you? Um, like let's say you made a bed that was six feet deep. I would say probably, I mean, it, it, it depends on where you, I mean, that's one reason why I'm in Montana. You know, I've, I've had people offer to give me land over on the west side of the Cascades, over like, uh, Seattle, between Seattle, Portland area, you know, around in there. And, and do what I do. Um, and, uh, but the thing is, is it's like, um, in those warmer climates, or you, it, it's really tough to build and hold on to organic matter. And so you build a hugel culture bed out there, it's going to last maybe 10 or 15 years. You build a hugel culture bed here in Montana, it's going to last 50 years. So, wow. and it, wow. it has to do with the fact that the microbials in the soil here go dormant in the wintertime. Over, they don't in the warmer environments. That makes sense, and I think, I, but I still say twelve years, fifteen years. Yeah, uh, for for putting in one year of limp, you know, almost no production or, or growing legumes and cover legumes and things like that. A second year of, of decent production, and then you know another twelve to thirteen years of not having to irrigate. It seems like a small price to pay, even even for those folks. I I agree. I'm with you. You got me sold. I'm buying. Um. But, you know, so yeah, culture is probably the, the easiest to understand of all the things of, I'm going to eliminate irrigation. Um, you know, if you think about it, well, here's the big perk, is that, um, uh, okay, so first year you garden like you've always gardened. The second year you get to start to cash in on the benefits of culture. Now you can leave for two weeks and go somewhere else and do stuff, and you don't have to line up somebody to water your garden. Plus, on top of that, now when you go and you eat those raspberries, they are they have five times more flavor than they did before. 
And uh, I completely agree. I know what you're talking about when you water something and eat it, it doesn't have anywhere near the flavor of, of something that would you consider a, uh, a natural grown or wild variety of thing. It just doesn't have the same taste, I guess, is the way, way you would phrase it. Plus, another thing, if you think about it, when you water tomatoes, it's kind of a crapshoot. I mean, you got to water it at just the right time or you're going to get blossom end rot. If you go a little bit too long... And, and another thing is, is that once and you, you encourage to, blight and you encourage mildew, right? You, you bet. Oh, absolutely. Don't water the leaves. If you do water. So now, now I'm going to put on my certified master gardener hat and I'm going to say, if you're out there watering your gardens, make sure you do not water the leaves. You water the soil. Only the soil. Um, all right. So now I'm going to go back to permaculture guy. <laughs> um, uh, once you start to water these plants, they become dependent on you. They put out less roots because it's kind of like, why should I put out roots? I get all the water I need right here. And all the fertilizer, the guy puts the fertilizer right on the soil. He waters it. And it comes down to me. I don't, I don't need to put much out in roots. So they end up with these shallow, pathetic, miserable roots. But boy, you miss a watering and now they are suffering. Absolutely. I guess with hugo culture, I'm putting that mass of wood way down there in the ground, and as it rots and decomposes, it turns into a giant woody sponge, and all that moisture is down there, and if that plant wants that moisture, it's got to go get it. It's and that means those roots are going to go down where they belong. So now it has this massive, you know, super-duper root system, which is not only finding all the water it needs, but it's finding all the nutrition that it needs, uh, and, and now it puts out this super fruit. That is just super tasty, super nutritious, super everything. And um, I've I've grown tomato plants um, with virtually no effort at all that were like eight feet tall, and and uh, you know not only that but covered in fruit. As you know, in fact, here I'm going to tell you a quick little story. Uh, there's a friend of mine in Seattle, and uh, uh, he had never raised a garden before. And um, he had dug up a whole bunch of sod and and didn't know what to do with it. And he asked me, I happened to stop by on the day that he was thinking about, well, should I take the sod to the dump or what? And and I said, well, here's an idea. How about if we leave the sod in the pile, we'll just go get some tomato plants and stick the tomato plants in there and um, call it good. And he was all kind of like, oh, that would look crappy in my yard. I want my yard to look all landscapey and stuff, you know. And so he, he ended up putting that pile of sod in a box. So he made like this wooden box around the sod. And we did. We stuck a couple of tomato plants in there. And I said, uh, you better put a cage around that plant today because that plant is going to grow like wildfire. And uh, if you don't do it today, soon it will be too big and you won't be able to get the plant to fit in the cage. And he's kind of like, He's not believing me. and I mean, he, he's got no experience of gardening, but he's sure I'm wrong. <laughs> In the meantime, his next-door neighbor, has, uh, who's been gardening for years, has put in her tomato plants. And she's got like six tomato plants, and they're all in cages, and they're all, you know, about six to eight inches tall, about the same height as the ones that we just put in. Um, at the end of the season... Uh, uh, her tomato plants are like about three feet tall, three and a half feet tall, and each tomato plant has maybe um, five pounds of tomatoes on it. My friend planted two tomato plants, 
and each plant has vined all over the place, and each plant probably has about 200, 250 pounds of tomatoes on it. So um, that's unbelievable. Just it is unbelievable as a macro, you know, a, a macro view, a big picture view. But to me, it's not un- unbelievable. It makes perfect sense. You've got all that nutrient, you've got all that water retention capability there, and that's you've got an indeterminate vine that's going to grow as big as it possibly can under whatever circumstances you you allow it to, to have to grow in. Right. So on the one hand, we got a guy who has really no idea what the hell he's doing, growing amazing tomatoes. On the other hand, we have a woman who has been raising tomatoes for years. She's read all the books. She's got it all figured out, and hers cannot even compare. That, you know, it's uh, it's it's an amazing technology, and I, I want to thank you for. I know you didn't invent it, but for 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 publicizing it because it's answered a tremendous amount of question for me about how I'm going to deal with irrigation, or let's call it the lack thereof, on, on my Arkansas homestead. It's a pretty rough place. I think it's a good place for permaculture, but it's got some challenges. And this solves a lot of problems. It's not an overnight fix like you've described. But I think that the whole way we've got in the mess we're in is people thinking plant the seed full yield this year every single time, take, 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 and no inputs. Or we take inputs from... Fossil fuels, and, and you know, I, I'm not a big global warming worry word or anything, but we, we still have to go get that from somewhere else. And if we have to put in more than we get out, then we're living in a fallacy where the minute we take away the cheap inputs, we don't have anything. True, true. I, I you know, I, I find it's kind of humorous when there's a lot of people who are at eco level two, and they really kind of feel like they're at the top, like like where they're at, you know for saving the planet uh, is as high up as it goes, and and now they can take on their heirs and whatnot. And it's like, but they're still, kind of like what you were talking about earlier, they, they take their sticks and their stuff, they put it in that green thing to go off and get composted, and then they go off to the compost facility and buy the compost buy the and compost. bring it all back. So, yeah, it, it's insane. And I guess they feel good because, hey, how could it be that bad, Paul? The, the box is green. <laughs> it's gotta be, it's gotta be eco-friendly because I got a great idea. We make all the cars ecologically friendly. You can choose from forest green or emerald green, and that's the only color we'll make cars. And they must be environmentally friendly because they're green, right? <laughs> there you go. Uh, boy, talk about greenwashing. Uh, I, you know, and, and I really kind of feel like, um, uh, uh, well, one of another article that that gets me a lot of hate mail is the one about the fluorescent light bulbs. I really think that that's going down the wrong path and but but for most people that's their green flag. They're they're all eco cuz they bought their fluorescent light bulbs and they're saving the world now. And I I kind of think, you know, that's the ultimate in greenwashing. Um I yeah. do not own a single fluorescent light bulb. In fact, I I I get a lot of hate mail because I I make the claim I switched from fluorescent too incandescent, and I cut my power bill by a factor of four. <laughs> now, granted, you know it's 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 not because of the light bulb change. I mean, here's here's the technique that I use to save power on my lighting. I call it turning off the fucking lights. <laughs> now. My analysis uh, might be off, but so far I'm pretty sure that when a light is off, it uses zero watts. And zero is less than the 14 watts 
that the fluorescent claims to use. Correct. Now, I've done a lot of analysis on these fluorescents, and I can tell you the packaging on the fluorescent light bulb is lying to you. Lies. Um, you know, they say we put out the same amount of lumens uh, as a 60-watt light bulb or a 100-watt light bulb. You know, no, no, they don't. And, and that's why the person that's doing the greenwashing with the bulbs, you go to their house and they have all the little squirrely lights everywhere, but they have like every light in the room on yeah, so that the room's bright, right? And you can put one incandescent bulb in, in the, the light fixture on the ceiling fan in the middle of the room and illuminate the entire room. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense at all to me. I, it, it never has. I I brought that up a year and a half ago, and I had some of my listeners get really upset with me about how great these things were. And I'm like, I just don't see the math adding up with them. And and the mercury in them doesn't really help the case much either. Yeah. So I I mean I I face the same problem every time I try to bring it up. I would be shouted down as as like I'm an idiot that doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. So <laughs> then I went I wrote this big long article going into a phenomenal amount of detail about it. And the first thing on the list is like, okay, you know, well, actually, it's the last thing on the list. The last thing I bring up is like, okay, now that I've told you all about all these different things about fluorescent light bulbs that you didn't know, that, you know, how you're getting screwed on the fluorescent light bulb thing, now let me tell you about my light bulb strategy. When it's dark out, I'm one person, I use one light bulb. And, and then, you know, I leave that one light bulb on for five, six hours a night or whatever it is for what I'm up. And then if I'm going to go take a leak, I turn on the light in the bathroom, I pee, and then I turn it off. I was there for less than a minute. you know. Yeah. And a fluorescent light bulb in that scenario is going to use more energy. Sure it is. And it will throw off less light. Yeah. And the light bulb costs more. Yeah. And the light bulb will have a shorter lifespan than the incandescent. When used that way, you're completely correct. Right. You're I, absolutely I, correct. On and off, they're, they, they're, they're terrible for that. There are scenarios where a fluorescent light bulb will indeed last longer than an incandescent. A fluorescent light bulb will use less energy. A fluorescent light bulb will earn its keep. But for the, for the, for most homes, we're talking about, you know, 20% of the time at most, 20% of the uses in a home where the fluorescent wins out over the incandescent. And now we're banning the incandescent. And granted, the ban does not specifically say we're banning incandescents, but I'm sorry, when the ban comes any, a year from now, the, the incandescent bulbs are out the door, or a bunch of them are. Most of them. Yeah. And that's Not to mention, more. every time we replace our incandescents with, with uh, fluorescents, many times these people are going in and they're taking out 20, 30 light bulbs out of their home, and all of those light bulbs are still good. Yeah. That, that's nice. the one that gets me. I changed all my bulbs out. Were they burned out? No. Well, if, even if you were going to do this, why wouldn't you let it run until it expired and then replace it? I, I, so let's not tear this one up too much because we got a great yeah. show and we're both going to get tailed <laughs> with the hate mail. But I, I'm okay with that. But but uh, but Paul, this was one of the best shows we've ever done. One of the longest ones I've ever done. But like I told you when I talked to you pre-show, uh, give you as much time as you want. I'd love to have you come back on and maybe take one of these topics and and dig deeper into it. I'm sure the audience would like that. So I want you to know that uh, 
you brought some really great new information to the show, and I appreciate you for that. And you will be welcome back here anytime you want. Well, I'm, you know, uh, Jack, it's not too often that I can find a place where they like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it. I, I guarantee you a lot of listeners are going to like you. This, the, I mean, this was a wealth of information. I wanted to... Uh, to again let people know about your sites, one site is permies.com. You guys have heard me talk about that before. P-E-R-M-I-E-S.com, like permacultures, permies.com. And then Paul's other site where you'll find a lot of articles about Sepp Holzer, uh, about uh, Hugel Culture, about paddock running your chickens, about all the stuff we've talked about today is richsoil.com. Again, richsoil.com. And I'll provide links to both of those and to Paul's YouTube channel in today's show notes. Paul, you got any final thoughts for folks or anything you want to throw out here at the end of the show? Um, oh, I, you know, I've covered so much, and if I get started on something else, I'll just go on for another hour. But thanks, Jack. Uh, this, was, this, was, this is great. Uh, it does seem like you're a kindred spirit to all of my crazy talk, so... Uh, it's uh, you're a, you're a rare find when when I can find somebody who knows what I'm talking about and um, you know won't simply reject it out of hand. No, I mean we we around here believe that it's our duty to to go in and take all of these things and take them apart and see what works and improve upon them. And as you were talking today, I could think about some of the things that you know two and a half years ago I was in love with uh, square foot gardening. When I first saw it, I thought this was the greatest thing in the world. And look, it's only six inches deep. And as you're talking about hugel culture, I'm thinking about why I got away from that six inch deep concept. Of course, the roots are only six inches deep. You gave them six inches of soil. <laughs> I mean, you know- so so I think yeah, we're, we're we're dead on with a lot of this stuff. And I would. Love love to have you come back on and uh i'm gonna have i'm sure listeners asking questions so maybe uh maybe we'll do a poll i'll put up all your subjects and whatever they vote on whatever they vote the highest on that's what we'll bring you back wow, to that'll, be, that'll be neat i'd like to see what the poll results are on square foot gardening i i personally believe mel bartholomew is is a genius and his square foot gardening book is awesome and spectacular and um, I, you know, I just want to. I just think it's a great place for a beginner to start, who has never gardened before. Because I, I do think that while the permaculture stuff will give you far more payback in the long run, it does take a little bit of knowledge to get started. Like, what is a legume, and why do I care? Whereas Mel Bartholomew's techniques in square foot gardening can can get you to the point where you're asking those questions. And, and you're producing right away. I mean, it is a great beginner's book as far as I'm concerned, and it's a great start, but but it, it, I guess for me, I did it, and then I evolved beyond it. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people will do. I, I would just love to have a sit-down with Mel Bartholomew, and after he's, like, you know, read a little bit about permaculture and to see where he's at, I would think that he would be excited and he'd come out with uh, uh, a square foot, Maybe it's cubic foot gardening. <laughs> yeah, it might be. And I think that his mind, uh, we don't want to go too much onto a new subject here, but that guy's mind, that engineering mind of his, I'd love to see him get it wrapped around the permaculture concept. But uh, we are going to go ahead and wrap up, folks. I, I know you guys have learned a lot of great stuff from Paul today. We will have him back on. I'll put together a poll. I'll throw that in the forum. And uh, I'll put up about five or six subjects he can talk on. And whichever one is the highest ranked one, we'll have him back to talk about. And, folks, I want you to take some of the stuff that you've learned today, and I want you to put it into practice, even little bits at a time. 
the, the, the paddocking of, of poultry, for instance, that can be done in a residential environment on a smaller scale. Uh, hugel culture, something anybody can do. If you can bury wood, you can do hugel culture. Uh, rocket mass heater, you can learn to do that in a day, and you can build one in a day. Uh, take the time to learn these things, put them into practice, to make them part of what you're doing, because everything that we do here is about one thing, and that is improving our own individual and liberty uh, on a daily basis, just a little bit at a time. And with that, I'll go ahead and sign off today. This has been Jack Spirico along with Paul Wheaton, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.